Okay, we've come as far as the first horseman in chapter 6. Uh, we talked a little bit more about other things last week, but um, in terms of detail and our, what we've been covering, we did not talk too much more than just that first horseman. So that's where we are, the first couple of verses of chapter 6. And so, once again, a slight recap is helpful. Our 22 chapters of Revelation. Hopefully you're not getting tired of being reminded of that. But we saw that the, the whole book is a letter, and we're trying to think always in terms of the letter of the book. Letter of the book? The book as a letter. And Paul writing it. Paul, my goodness, my mind's in Paul this morning. But John writing this letter, and how does the whole letter, the whole vision of Revelation serve as part of the message to the churches? So the beginning of the letter are very specific comments towards each church the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. And they are governed by the vision of Jesus in chapter 1, how he reveals himself. And he's very much God in that chapter, very much intimate with the church. He walks among the lampstands. He takes care of them. He knows all about them. That's one of the big themes repeated, right? I know your works. I know your works. I know where you live. I know what's happening. I know that this you fall short here. I know you're doing this well. This is what you need to change. This is where you need to get better. And then... Towards the end of that letter, of each letter, it's that, it's that message, overcome. You need to overcome. You need to become victorious over your particular challenge and your struggle. I'm with you. And at the end of the letters, uh, the seven letters, he does say to the church, basically, you know, come to me to buy the resources that you need. And uh, I will come dine with you if you respond well to my correction. And so that's the, that's the feeling of this vision is this... God, it's a heavy, it's mostly negative in those chapters. Like he's not happy with the church. They need to change. And then he's revealing the real struggle that they are in. So the, the beginning is really closely tied to the rest of the book when we read it all as one letter, that this is what the church needs to know that it is in. And so that's been one significant change in reading the book this way, that the book is not primarily about specific future events that we might or might not experience. It's, uh, we're reading the book as if it's talking about what the church needed to hear then. So the way that this is set up up here is that we understand chapters 4 and 5 to be describing what happens, Jesus, the Jesus event, him coming, being born, dying, resurrected, and ascending. It's, he takes the place of all rule. He is the ruler. And that begins 2,000 years ago. And then what begins to unfold after, the vision is governed, the rest of the vision of the book is governed by what happens in 4 and 5. God removing the seals or breaking them, that's a description of him exercising the authority that he's been given. And so the challenge for us then is to realize this is talking about the time period that we are in, which is the rule of the slain lamb. He's exercising his rule during these seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bulls. So that's a different way of reading this book, is that it's not primarily a book about things that will happen once we are gone, or at a specific time called the Grand Great Tribulation, but it's primarily about what the church needs to know of its present struggle to overcome. And so he affirms in these uh, seals that he's in charge of everything, and what we just really scratched the surface of is that these horses are being released from God. He is releasing them. 
And so he's the one behind all of that. So the Christian church is looking at chaos. And regardless of what we take the first horseman to be, we talked about the possibility of Ebb. He does sound like awful lot like what Christ is, the white horse, the one who conquers, and that there's validity in that. It could, it could be that. Uh, as a grouping with four, he could also be a negative conqueror, meaning he's just causing chaos. He's been granted authority to do that, to overcome. And, and in the story of Revelation, the vision of Revelation, there is some of that. The beast is granted authority to overcome the saints, while at the same time the saints overcome the beast. So that's the tension that the church is in. They are in this war. And victory is guaranteed, but struggle is also part of that victory. That's part of the challenge for the church, that they're under this persecution. Is Christ in charge? I mean, we say he's up in heaven, and then here is this demagogue, Caesar, claiming to be the son of God. That was one of his titles. And he's after us. The Jews are after us. The Romans are after us. Where's Jesus? So I think that's part of what the book, this vision is answering. He's actually ruling. And the chaos is his. Is that? I thought about it some more, too. And when I read it again and thought about it some more, it doesn't make any sense that he knew now that it might be Christ. Because the lamb is opening this and calling it out. So it's like, yes, he can be provoked at the one time and all that. But that yeah. It doesn't seem to make common sense that he would be calling out something that represented himself. Yeah, it's, it, it can be difficult. I don't think it's impossible, but it is, you're right, it is kind of, uh, a little bit less. it's like a stretch. And then you lose the idea of these four horsemen together. And so what I had asked you guys to, to read, and we're going to read it today if you didn't have a chance, is something from Ezekiel. Uh, and I didn't tell you to read Leviticus, but we might, we might go there. So a lot of these images, like I said, are going to be places from the Old Testament. And they are crazy as, as they are here. Sometimes... As, as we see them in other parts of the Bible, they're even crazier. And look at that. <laughs> You're like, oh my goodness. I can't believe this is, all, this is all here. And so Ezekiel does mention something. It doesn't have horsemen, but it, it talks about when God judged Israel in the past. It talks about his fourfold judgments. And they are eerily similar to these four, four horsemen. They're not exactly the same. So I had mentioned Ezekiel 14. Actually, I'm sorry. Let's just stay here and read the four, the, these other horsemen again one more time just that we are reminded, from verses 3 to 7. Yeah, 3 to 7, 8, whatever. The, sec- the first one is the white horse. Verse 3, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come out or come. And we talked about either he's talking to John to come up and see the horse or he's talking to the horse. I'm more inclined to think he's talking to the horse. But he came out and came out another horse, bright red, and its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people would slay one another, and he was given a great sword. And when he opened the third seal, I heard a third living creature say, Come on up! And I looked, and behold, a black horse this time, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. Seems to be talking about the ability to eat, to to produce food, the prices increasing for food, presumably because God has restrained the earth from producing fruit. So now there's supply and demand, right? That was the case back then too, just as it is today. And then the fourth one, the fourth living creature says, Come out 
And I looked, and behold, it was, was a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades, or hell, that's the word for hell. Hell is following him. It's almost as if hell is a person here in this. It's just, it's another hint that we're not talking about literal spiritual horses or people. Death isn't a person. Death is something we experience, but it's, it's personified here. The writer's name was Death. This is like comic book stuff, right? There is, there is no figure named Death in the Bible. This is a vision, right, meant for us to be thinking metaphorically that God has granted uh, death to have a place on the earth. It's a limited authority. So death and hell are this other horse. They're given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts of the earth, which sounds an awful lot like the previous horses, doesn't it? Sword, the conqueror, and the other one taking peace. Oh yeah, the second one has a sword. He takes peace away. Famine is the, the third seal, third horse, where there's issues with food. And then uh, pestilence here is an interesting one, like plagues, like bugs, scabs, and then wild animals, which this is what we're going to see in Ezekiel chapter 14. So here are these judgments unleashed on the earth. We're not given exactly where they're going, who they're attacking, except that it's limited. God says you can only harm a fourth. Uh, of people. And I don't think we're meant to understand that to be literally one-fourth of the population of the world, but more so a limited amount. You can't just do whatever you want. God controls death. In chapter 1, Jesus has the keys over death and Hades. It's the same thing. Who's in charge of death and Hades? Jesus, not Satan. Right? The medieval tradition created this imagery of Satan as the one in charge of hell. He's down there with his minions, like he's the one, he's the boss down there. Nope. In Revelation 1, God's like, Jesus is in charge of hell. He's the one who holds the keys to the gate. He's the one who sends people there. He's the one who says what happens there. Satan is act well, yeah, we won't get into that, but he it's not that. We have this imagery in our head of of the horned guy sitting in there, the boss man. That's not the case in the Bible, anyway. So where where did these ideas come from? Maybe, maybe, just maybe, um, some of these images come from the Old Testament prophets. So Ezekiel 14. And as you're opening there to Ezekiel 14, what we are doing is uh, the following. We're, we are kind of reading whole Bible. And what that means is that when we look at the revelation of John, we're going to see this over and over again. I feel confident enough to say that when you see it repeated enough times, you feel safe in saying John is very much thinking of different parts of the Bible as he writes the vision, whether God gave this to him and he's merely writing it down. It doesn't matter. Or if he's wanting to just give us a very visual letter. Regardless, we are meant to read these, these words in light of the rest of the Bible. Whoever get, if it's just purely from Jesus' mind, he's also thinking of the Bible, thinking that we know the rest of the Bible. So when he mentions things, it's meant to like send light bulbs off in our minds. Oh, that's very similar to da-da-da-da. And it's all over the book. So I, I don't feel like it's stretching when we read these other prophets and go, oh, you know what? Maybe the inspiration for this image comes from 
Isaiah, from Ezekiel. So we're going to see a couple of those things in the seals that I really want. Hey, if you have a question about that, let's dissect that because that's an important principle in how we read and interpret Revelation. So in Ezekiel 14, as God is ready to judge Israel for their rebellion, this is a description of judgment for exile. The last paragraph of the chapter, starting in verse 21, he has already mentioned, um, technically this whole thing starts at verse 12, but verse 21 and on will be sufficient for what I wanted you to see. Thus says the Lord God, how much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, and they are the sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence. Very similar to the four horsemen, these four, I call them covenant judgments of God with his people. To cut off from it man and beast. Some survivals will be left in it, sons and daughters who will be brought out. Behold, when they come out to you and you see their ways and their deeds, you will be consoled for the disaster that I have brought upon Jerusalem, for all that I have brought upon it. They will console you when you see their ways and their deeds, and you shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it. This is almost meant to be like a comfort for Ezekiel because they're going to Babylon and God's saying, Jerusalem's not going to survive this. There are people there, but I'm annihilating them. But he gives us a little glimpse of the result of my judgment will be a purified people. That's what he means by the sons and the daughters and that they will comfort Ezekiel. He will be actually, okay, there was some good that came out of God's judgment upon them. But anyways, this vision is very similar to God judging. Is it, it's possible that this is again highlighting the judgments that are unleashed on the earth and the four horsemen are gods. They're not evil forces that are running rampant. God's the one in charge of pestilence, of famines, of disasters, of sword and wars and conflict, and even death and disease itself. And so that's the, um, I think that's part of the idea of the vision itself, is to communicate to the church, you don't have to worry about whether these natural disasters are like these forces, like there's these gods behind, you know, the military and the wars, if there's, there's these things that you have to be concerned about. They are all part of God's rule. They're under his subject. So the Roman Empire church, God's in charge of them. And they, they might seem like they are ruling the earth right now, and they will never be stopped. And it would, it would be a couple hundred years later where Rome would become Christian and carry the, the cross of Jesus as its banner you know, by Constantine in the 4th century. Rome would be converted. It would almost become the opposite, right? They would take the name of Christ and want to subjugate the world. It's crazy how that happened in a couple hundred years when this tiny group that lived in this little part of the Roman Empire was under their, man, it was under their wrath for a while. So that, again, that's part of the message of the Four Horsemen is that I am in control of these, it feels like the apocalypse is upon you, but they're actually my horsemen and I determine the limits of their, their strength. I determine the famines and the pestilence. Even, and I love that even the wild beasts, you know, in Revelation, where wild beasts are part of what kill the planet. God's like, even the animals, oh, this, this is all mine. And what, what happens there, their aggression or lack of aggression, it's all kind of my, it's my prerogative. I'm in control. Carol, sorry. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering, when he says that he's all controlling I'm doing this to you, and I'm consoling you to know that I'm not doing it as, you know, uh, 
or, or there's not an evil God that's doing it. I'm doing it because I'm trying to purify my people, you know? Yeah, that's, that's the vision with the, the children that come out. Yeah. There will be a fruit of his judgment that's kind of telling Ezekiel mm-hmm. it's not going to be a burnt stump left and nothing left over. There's, there's going to be a positive result from my judgment over you. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he's, he's in part doing that because the, the people he's judging are comprised of two people. One, like his people, people who really believe in him, the righteous, and he actually takes them out and puts them in Babylon. Okay. And then the people who refuse to accept even that message says there's, there's nothing left for you. You, you will be annihilated. And so there are, there's two messages. So the righteous people, when they left to, to Babylon, Ezekiel, and even Jeremiah was left behind for, because God wanted him to stay there. They were very confused because people who remained said, we're fine. It's okay. It's not that bad. Look, we're still surviving, and we, we are okay. And there were false prophets that would say, you, you're right, God is now blessing you. This is the year of your return and your blessing. But all the other prophets said, no, it's going to be 70 years of judgment. Mm-hmm. And Jeremiah was in the, and if you read through Jeremiah, he's in the council, and the false prophets come up to the king, and they say, the Lord has said that by next year, you know, the yoke of Egypt will be off of your neck. I forget what, what exactly he said. And Jeremiah was like, oh, if God has said that, amen to that. And then later God says to Jeremiah, no, go back in there and tell that prophet he's going to die. He's not mine. And then and Jeremiah has to say, huh? That's in Jeremiah. Yeah, um, <clears throat> let's see, it's going to be in the first 17 chapters, this whole, or am I totally wrong? No, actually, it's chapter 28, I'm totally wrong. So, so we'll just we'll just look at this real quick. Chapter twenty-eight. <clears throat> Although this has nothing to do with Revelation, it is interesting. Uh, the same year, beginning the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah. So there was still a remnant left in Judah. A large chunk had been sent away. In the fifth month of the fourth year, Hananiah the son of Azur, the prophet from Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord in the presence of the priests and the people, saying, "Thus says the Lord God of Israel: I have broken the yoke of Babylon. That's Babylon, not Egypt." Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. And I will bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, and all the exiles. In other words, everyone's going to come back in two years, even though the prophets had already announced God's judgment of 70. Then the prophet Jeremiah spoke to Hananiah in the presence of everyone, right, who was standing in the house of the Lord. Verse 6, the prophet said, Oh, Amen! May the Lord do so. May the Lord make the words that you have prophesied come true and bring back to this place from Babylon the vessels of the house of the Lord. It's almost like, yes, Jeremiah really hopes that that God has said that through him Mm -hmm. and just hasn't told him about that. Um, Then verse 10. Let's see, where are we? Yeah, 10. Prophet Hananiah took the yoke bars from the neck of Jeremiah the prophet and broke them. And Hananiah said in front of everyone, Thus says the Lord, even so I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations within two years. And then Jeremiah goes his way. And then verse 12, sometime after the prophet had broken the yoke from off the neck of Jeremiah, then the word of God comes to Jeremiah. <laughs> God's like, uh, no. He says, now go back to Hananiah and say, thus says the Lord, you broke the wooden bars, but you've made in their place bars of iron. 
thus says the God of Israel, I have put on the neck of all these nations the yoke to serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they shall serve him. I have given him even the beasts of the field. And then Jeremiah said to Hananiah, Listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you. You made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will remove you from the face of the earth. This year you will die. It, this is just, I love the Old Testament stuff. So graphic, so in your face. And uh, yeah, I don't know what, how we got here with, the, uh, with this. Oh yeah, the Ezekiel thing, and we kind of talked about a little. It's just neat to just understand that that happened. You know, you can go back and see, but that's really what's going on. Here. Yeah, so that, that's the history in there. And if you really think about that, that context for chapter 29 really brings another layer. Because 29, the, the famous 2911. I know the plans that I have for you, plans for good. It's really in contrast because that message is to those who obeyed. But to those who stayed and rebelled, and God, God said, go to Babylon. You are in judgment. And so the faithful said, fine, we submit. And they went. But there was the lar this large group that stayed and just said, no, we're okay. We'll be okay. Look, God is blessing us. Like we're surviving and we're under the blessing. And these false prophets were repeating that under the leadership. And so to them, God says, no, now I'm going to annihilate you even quicker than I had planned. And then he had to reaffirm to the exiles, hey, you guys are here, but don't worry. Plant vineyards, marry, have kids. I haven't forgotten you. I'm going to take care of you because you submitted yourself to me. But these, this other group of, of people, there's a... Yeah, so there's the, that's part of, I guess, maybe the message in Ezekiel as well. There is going to be blessing and protection for those who respond. And maybe that's even a little bit, you know, the the weight of this message to the church, it's very similar. It's like an Old Testament vision. God's people, you need to respond well. You need to overcome. If you don't, God will judge you just as he always has judged his people. But if you do, open your eyes to this truth that you are in, in a battle. And so the, the seals reveal to us that God's in charge of this battle and he's bringing judgments on the earth. Yes, and they are all his, those four horsemen. talks about Nebuchadnezzar here, but in Daniel, when it says, my servant, mm. it really gives you the idea that he's not just overtaking the world on his own. Mm -hmm. He's doing he's doing it, but God's allowing him. Yeah, that's part of the vision in the, the statue in chapter 2, is yeah. God says, you know, he has granted you authority over all the kingdoms of the earth, and then he will grant another one, and he will let another one arise. It, it's the same I am in charge of everything. And then when he gets too prideful, starts thinking that he did it, God's like, <laughs> nope. He's, he calls Cyrus the same way in Isaiah 45. My Messiah, my servant. You don't even know my name, but I'm the one who has given you authority over the earth. And I give you victory after victory after victory. But if you exalt yourself too much after beating up my people, I will cut you down like a nasty old tree that you are. It's just, it's crazy language. It's really, it's really neat. So we, um, so that's what we're looking at with the four horsemen and the four seals is God just repeating his authority over everything. Judgments on the earth, wars, battles, empires, uh, diseases and famines. And part of what I was trying to get at last week is just this notion that revelation doesn't make us feel like the end of the world's coming, everything's chaos. It's, it's made for you to go, the chaos is God-constrained. It's God-ordered. It's God-governed. 
we are not living in this universe where everything is just cause and effect. You know, oh, if this happens and this happens and then we're all going to die. Like, no. God doesn't even <laughs> let hell kill people unless it's granted by him. You, you, know, you know what I mean? So we, we have that very clearly. And that, that's how this naturally leads to the fifth seal where the vision is, well, then why are we taking so long? Right? That's kind of the ultimate response. There's all these judgments unleashed on the earth and God's in charge of it all. Well, then, God, we bring our prayers to you. How long? And the, the word there for God is very, it's actually a unique word that the, those under the altar are, are crying out. It says uh, in verse 10, I mean, we're back in Revelation, by the way, where it says, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord. That's, that's a more of a rare term in, uh, in the New Testament. Usually we don't have this word. It's sometimes, but it's the word for despot. And it's, again, just a repetition of, oh, you who rule over everything, right? Just emphasizing. It's not so much the word sovereign. It's just, it's almost like a dictator. It's almost, it's basically like saying dictator. Oh, dictator, right? You who rule over everything have, a, have supreme authority. You don't have to ask anybody for permission. We come to you and we're asking you, well, how much longer is this going to go on? How long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Are we there? Are you guys looking at that? Now, just think about this for a second. Just like in other places in the letters where something is mentioned, like um, the second death, you know, in the letters, and you're kind of like, what is that? We haven't seen that yet in the Bible. Very similar to that, when, you, when we read this phrase, it's kind of like, where is this happening? Like, when, when did this start happening, right? All these people who were killed... And it says there, avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. In chapters 1 through 6, do we have a description of where people are being like massacred? Like in the large scale and all these people are up there asking God to avenge their blood? We don't have that yet. Right? This is part of the technique of him just like fishing at you and, and kind of like hook you and just kind of dragging you into the, so that you're like, what is he talking about now? Right? It's, we don't have this yet. The rest of the vision from 6 to 19 is going to paint this picture to us of what, what is he referring to. So in other words, it's not until we read the rest of Revelation and then come back and reread it that this begins to make a little bit more sense. Because it's later on in the book that we find out the beast is like annihilating the saints. It has been granted. He predicts that, right, in the letters. See, he tells them yes. going to. Yeah, he gives you a little like, hey, I, I see you, Pergamum. You're at the throne of Satan. Is it? No, Smyrna. Or, uh, Smyrna. Yeah, he's like you. You, Satan is going to throw you in jail. Yeah, we get a little glimpse of that. That that's what's happening. And then it, as you get fully in the letter, then it becomes a little bit bigger. Like, oh, okay. There's this whole power that's involved in this. Um, come with me later. This is either going to be verse chapter eleven or nineteen. Let us look at the, um, or is it 18? Dun, da, 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 dun. Mm. Let, me, let me just, I didn't um, fully look at this earlier, but this blood, okay. So are we at 18? 
So like Be- what Bev said is right. Here we have this little glimpse. The church in Smyrna, uh, the, uh, Satan is about to kill some of them. It's a small scale. And then we get to this fifth seal, and it's like, what's happening? That all these people have been annihilated for their faith, or this vision that describes all those whose blood has been shed, and they're like, God, how much longer? And God says, well, until all of them that I have determined are dead, right? I decide how many of my people are going to die. It's not the, the enemy. It's not death. It's not pestilence. It's not wild beasts. It's not foreign empires. I determine how many of my people I want to die for my name. And that, until it's done, this is going to go on. That's the despot, the dictator ruling. Now, this battle of the blood thing when we get to chapter 18 later, something becomes like very clear. God, in chapter 18, there's a, a vision of a big prostitute, and she represents Babylon. She represents the organized um, human attempt at rebellion at God. And so she, what we're going to see in 18 is that she's representing like all of rebellious empires throughout time. She has in her, and we're going to see that she's drunk with something, which is it's going to be very interesting. So verse 18, uh, just so that we can what see. Chapter is that now? We're in chapter 18. Sorry, not verse 18. You're, if you're chapter 18, that's perfect. Okay. Jump to the verses right before 18 uh, in chapter, in verse 15. So of 17 15, as we get towards 18, he's given a vision of this big prostitute sitting on a beast, and then John has to explain what he's mean. So the angel said to me, the waters there that you saw where the prostitute is seated, those represent peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And in the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast, towards the end, they'll just hate the prostitute. They'll make, they'll make her naked, and they will devour her and burn her up. God has put it in, her, in their hearts to carry out this purpose of being one mind, handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Here's 18, verse 18. The woman you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. In other words, she represents this big empire that represents mankind rebellion against God himself, which he will deal with towards the end. The beast is going to kill her. He's going to rebel against her. But they're working in tandem. Verse 1 of 18, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, great authority, the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She, became, she has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, every unclean bird, everything that's unclean and detestable. All the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. The merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. So she represents just this system and attitude that all the nations that do not follow God fall into, which is luxurious living, sexual immorality. It's just all this filth. And God says she is existing right now along with the beast. And it's almost like they're getting everybody drunk, spiritually drunk with their lifestyle. And towards the end of the vision describing her death, Jump all the way down towards the end of chapter 18, starting at verse 21, where God says, you know, at the end, and I'm, I think this fits well with the end when Jesus returns. He's going to judge her in this whole thing once and for all. Verse 21 says, The mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea. This is Old Testament imagery of how God just, what he deals with when, he doesn't, when he's done with an empire. He just tosses it. 
right? That's how big and strong he is. So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and be found no more. The sound of all the harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters, you know, all this celebration, they, they live like they're so happy. The image that comes to my mind is like New Year's Eve parties I see on TV. Just people like, we're going to get drunk. We're going to live our lives. Like, just like complete lust, like whatever, whatever, every, anything goes. And God's like, yeah, all your parting, it's just going to be done. Right? There's going to be a day of reckoning. <clears throat> the cra- and um, a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. The sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. In other words, all the economic activity, all this economic prosperity that I've allowed to go on, I'm going to shut it off. One In one night, the light of the lamp will shine on you no more. The voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. Your merchants were the great ones of the earth. All the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And here it is. You, in you was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Like since all time, this person represents that organized crime and pursuit of the righteous blood. And this is just a hint at what we're seeing in the fifth seal. What, What is happening really? Well, not until you complete the vision of the book, do you see that God has granted these beastly powers and this horror the ability that within their nonsense, they end up killing the righteous and they devour righteous people. And God has, he's over that. He oversees that. And he's like, there's coming coming a time where I'm just going to end it. I'm just going to, but until then, that's where all the righteous blood is being spilt. It's being almost like she's drunk off of it, the the whore. She represents the people. They, They like it. They like persecuting the people of God. They like killing them off. So the fifth seal, we haven't gotten there yet, but it's planted right here where the people who've been slain, we don't know where exactly this is, what this looks like, but there is this, how much longer are you going to let this go on, Lord? Like when we, I think you mentioned, Dennis, was it you, the Fox Book of Martyrs last week? Somebody mentioned that. It was Pam. Pam. Like when somebody reads some of that stuff where they today would argue that there is more persecution happening today than back then. We, we are just blinded to it. We, we live in the, uh, I will argue that we live in the days of the prostitute and she just has everybody drunk and we just, everyone's kind of like senseless and we don't know what's happening. And Revelation is kind of like, wake up, church. Chapters two and three, <clears throat> listen, pay attention to what I'm telling you, right? The call to discern the number of the beast is think about what's happening around us. The methods, these are the methods of the enemy. Granted that God has granted that authority, but God said, but that doesn't mean you're supposed to fall into it. You're supposed to overcome. You're at war with the, with the beast and with the prostitute. So that little fifth seal is just a little hint at the fact that, yes, the people of God are being killed and prosecuted. And it's not like it's like this, God's like, oh, man. I wish it would, I wish that, that, you know, I didn't really want that to happen, but I guess that's just the way it's going to go. In Revelation, God says, that's the way my word is going to spread. I have granted the beast authority to do that. It's not an evil power that I'm at war with. This is just the way I have determined how human history is going to plan out. Christ didn't die a mere victim of circumstance. That was the plan of God for him. And for that church in Smyrna, it's the same thing. You're one of the faithful ones, and to you I've granted the honor to suffer and die for my name. Like, that's your privilege to do. 
on the earth. <clears throat> so that little seal, that fifth seal is really like a, it forces us to go, what, what's going on here? And then to read ahead. And that's just one part, uh, chapters 18 and 19. There are, there are other parts in 13 and 14 of Revelation that also fill in this question of, where are all these dead people coming from? Who's killing off all the people of God that they're begging God to act for him? We're going to see the forces in the, the, the rest of the vision of the book. You were a follow-up. That would include all the Old Testament saints as well, and those that have been So yeah, here is the big, uh, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but this is really neat. So that's why I keep trying to tell you, read the whole book, even though we're just still here. The more that you read it, it just kind of saturates your mind and you start thinking more about it. So I have, we don't have enough, I wish we could just have this big Bible. <laughs> but, so you're right, uh, in 18 and 19, um, the whore is called Babylon. And what's fascinating is that in terms of time, Babylon, Babylon was long destroyed before Jesus was even born. Hundreds of years. Uh, no. Let's not go that far. But it, it was, that empire had gone and the Medes and the Persians had arisen. Uh, Greece had arisen and basically took take over the world in terms of uh, their culture, their, their military. And then Rome, right? So we're, we're several world empires removed. Like, we can't imagine the world without, right now, without America being the superpower. It's hard to remember that, but it was just World War I and World War II that catapulted America to being almost like the world's superpower to, to some degree. We were just kind of like a, a thing, right? Britain had the world's economy in uh, World War I. We, we, the dollar wasn't the, the, the money, the currency. It wasn't like everyone needs to speak English because of America, but... Because of our dominance, English, the language is lingua franca, they call it. The language that other nations learn to be able to interact with us and, and have the marketplace. That was the case with Babylon for a long time. Aramaic was lingua franca. Roman Empire comes, no one even remembers Babylon anymore. They're gone from, from history. So the fact that they're mentioned, oh, she is Babylon. It takes you all the way back. God's saying, this is not just the Roman Empire. This is not just the place called Babylon. It's like behind ancient Babylon, there is this organized human activity that is empowered by demonic forces that God's like, yeah, th this has been there for a long time. Actually, all the righteous blood slain has been in her. Right? She, she is the seductress that seduces men. You can go all the way back to Tower of Babel. Right? It's a reference to Babylon itself, where men get together and they just get all these kooky ideas about, we're going to do this. Right? It's man without God, and it's, and it's personified in this seductress room because it is, so, it is so seductive what we can do. Like I still look at like, New York City skyline, and it's amazing what we can do, what we can build. These big centers of... It's just amazing. All this organization and... and you know, like, what we're able to do when we put our minds together, there is potential that God put into us. But it's so seductive to think that we can control our destiny. We can, you know, we can determine the economies of the nations. We, we can attain for ourselves. We can make all the food that we need for every... We, we can do this. We can do that. We can plan this and yada, yada, yada. We can travel to Mars and we can... And we can, but it's just, you get so caught up in the the drunkenness, the, the pride of life, the, all that stuff. And God said, that's all Babylon. It's this entire nation, this system of thought that's foreign to me and rebellion against me. 
And it's that very system that fights against the witnesses of Jesus who say, no, Jesus is Lord. There's only one king on the earth. That system responds at different times in history and just wants to shut it out, snuff it out. And Revelation is a vision of Jesus saying, I got the keys. They are actually are limited by me. So we look at atrocities in human history, and as awful as they might seem, Revelation still says, God's like, I, I granted them limited authority. You know, as awful as Hitler was, God's like, he didn't take a breath without me allowing him to breathe in his nose and out his mouth. And I, I was over that. Like, that's, that's what the, a lot of the prophets just like silence us. God's like, I'm the author of the good and I'm the author of disaster. You can't have just one. You can't just have me be the God of all the good stuff. I'm in charge of everything. It's like, that's what we're called to, that's why all the elders in the scene here, they're just like bowing down when they get before him. Like, oh my gosh, <laughs> everything. In Ecclesiastes, it says when times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider the Lord God is brief and close. Yeah, that's a powerful, powerful like repetition. That's in Ecclesiastes. I didn't like that because it's like, wait a second, God is good. How can he make them both? Sometimes you struggle with these things. When you see like disasters, when you see martyrdom happening, that is when Christianity spreads in that area. You know, and, like why can't it? You know, and I I know I, I can't spread without that. Yeah, mm -hmm, but it can't. It doesn't. In our in our country, because we have so much wealth and so much power. It's like you don't need God, you know? Uh, that's a, it's a, I, I don't know. I, I don't know either. Yeah. Mm. In Acts, it gets to the point where, I think it's after Paul becomes a believer, it mm. says then the church had great growth. Mm. And it's like, okay, so it does, but I guess it's up to God. I mean, mm -hmm. when you have persecution, and when you don't, the church can grow even more. Yeah. It really is up to God, the determining of the empires. Yeah, so it, those are the big, heavy themes of Revelation. It's not, here's your prophetic timetable. It's, it's these things. It's Revelation about who is the one making those decisions. It's the lamb that was slain. Right? That's what we're claiming. He is the one overseeing all that. He's been given all authority. And the chaos is not a sign that he doesn't rule. Revelation is saying the opposite. The chaos now is under the direct rule of the Lamb, and he has a purpose for that chaos, and it somehow spreads his message further into the earth to all the nations. That's, that's his goal. So in the seals, I think we have a vision of all of human history, from the resurrection of Jesus, ascension, all the way till the end. These seven seals represent this progression. The judgments are unleashed on the earth. <clears throat> People are asking, how much longer is this going to, is this going to take? And then we have uh, the sixth seal is broken. It's almost a, a response. You can almost feel like a progression in this, in the seals. <clears throat> the sixth one is unleashed. And then what happens? You can either say it out or look at it real briefly. What? Yeah. Yeah. The. <clears throat> That's right. It does seem like insane stuff. It gives you a sense of like, uh, well, it can't be much after that. Once, uh, right. once the stars are gone, I'm pretty sure the universe has been altered to a pretty amazing degree. 
Okay, so that, that's the question. Are, are, are we familiar exactly what we're talking about in the sixth seal? And, and I, I actually want you to look at it and read that paragraph for a minute just so you get the impact of what Joe is mentioning. Look at that description and, and, tell, and just tell me what you think of that. Maybe just 12 through 14, just those three verses. Well, in verse 14, the sky receded like a scroll rolling up. They used to talk about that as that must be like atomic blast happens. And just rips the so fabric of... And tries to plug in something that we know right. into what these are saying. <clears throat> it doesn't necessarily mean it's right. It could have been about atomic blasts. Yeah, that, and that is, a, that is kind of the thought, is that John is seeing the future, and he's seeing something he doesn't understand, and he's trying to write it in the way he would. Right? That's always been one of the ways that the futurist model explains this part, these parts of the book. Right? Because for, for many people, this is a, all a description of a future time period of judgment on the earth, and they're going to occur just about at, at face value. There's going to be these horses that are unleashed, and they're going to cause exactly the damage they're saying and then this, this falls just in line with that. It's going to be a, a literal grand earthquake. The earth, the, it says here, the moon will look red, not becomes blood, but it will look like blood. And the earth, will, the sun will go dark, like some sort of eclipse that uh, happens. So that, that's how many take that. Do we have to do that? Are there alternatives to that? And I think there are alternatives. You can judge for yourself. I'll just propose this. Let's, let's go to Isaiah, I think it's 13 or 14. I can't remember which chapter I said uh, for you guys to take a look at during the week. But we'll look at that and, the, and Joel. There are a couple of examples in the Old Testament, in the prophets, where God speaks very similar, if not exactly the same, about previous judgments. It should be Isaiah 13. That God does use similar language to describe when he is just so fed up with what's happening and it will kind of be up to you to um, consider whether it's enough to say oh he's using the language of the prophets and so whatever they meant that's what John's trying to convey so Isaiah 13 is a judgment and at the very first verse says this is about Babylon and this was about the empire that Isaiah was saying it's about their invade God's going to bring them but he's also going to judge them <clears throat> so it's about their eventual future day of judgment, both for the people, but then also God saying, I'm also going to have to judge Babylon because they're awful. They're an awful evil. So, um, you know what? We are basically out of time, but let's, let's just, let, let, we'll just get, we'll just look at it really quick. Verse nine, <clears throat> the day of the Lord comes it is cruel and there's wrath and there's anger and he makes the land a desolation and destroys its sinners from it and this is either a description of when babylon comes over jerusalem to destroy her or when god gets mad enough with babylon that he comes against her and the point is this is the language god uses to describe him judging an empire and a nation <clears throat> verse 10 the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light the sun is going to be dark at its rising, and the moon 
will not shed light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I'm going to put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I'm going to make people more rare than fine gold. In other words, I'm just going to, I'm going to kill a lot of people. All the, these masses and these empires, I'm going to annihilate them. It's very graphic language. Verse 13, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of Yahweh in the day of his fierce anger. But jump down to 17. This to me is a hint that he's talking about his judgment on Babylon, the empire that thinks it rules the world. And it was. It was the diadem, the, the golden charm of the whole world was Babylon at the time. But God just says they're going to be annihilated. 17, I'm going to stir up the Medes, this empire that didn't even exist yet. I'm going to raise them up who have no regard for silver, no delight in gold, and their bowls will slaughter the young men, and they will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes won't even pity children. And then Babylon, that great glory of the kingdoms, the splendor and the pomp of the Chaldeans, they're just going to be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. Right? It's, it's as if no one remembers them anymore. The idea here is that the language of stars falling from heaven, the, earth and the, the sun and the moon, the earth and the heavens shaking, the idea is like this thing that seems like it will never change, just like the, the moon, it's like, I'm going to, it's going to be like that falling apart when I take away the empire of Babylon. It's like, you can't imagine the world without it. That's kind of what he's saying. Just like you can't imagine the earth without the sun, you can't imagine the world without Babylon ruling over it, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to annihilate them. They're going to be gone one day. I'm going to raise up a different empire. It's hard in the generation you're in to think outside of, you know, like our world, unless you're right in the middle of that transition period, right in the middle of a global world. But before it happens, God's already saying, I am going to do this, and it's going to feel like the sky is leaving. Right? That's the language. Is that possible to read in John? Well, we'll, we'll take a look at one more next time. Uh, Joel chapters 2 and 3, if you want to read that. That is the same language, uh, but it's almost like the moon turning blood and the sun darkening. That's exactly the language God says, on the day of the Lord, when I judge this nation, this people, that's what it's like. It's like these things that shouldn't ever move and change, that always stay the same. God has power to change things that might seem like they never will. So he can undo a whole empire. So I think that's kind of what the seal is, is doing. Is that what, Sometimes like, oh, the world's never going to change. Politicians will always be corrupt. The world's always going to have these issues. We feel that way. And God's like, yes and no. Yes and no. There is going to come a day where I'm going to end it all. Like that's hard for us to really envision, right? That, that's, yeah. I think that's part of the imagery. It's so shocking. It's like the sky vanishing. God's like, I'm going to undo all this human pride and all this corruption in the highest levels of government. One day it will all be gone and we will be humans ruling the world together, all glorifying God, all acknowledging him as Lord. It's hard to fathom that, right? To be a reality one day that human beings on an earth living together, rejoicing together that we all acknowledge and love God. It's, it's hard to imagine. I think that's part of the, the shocking imagery. This is going to happen one day, right? It's like the stars falling from the sky. It's going to change. So we'll, we'll repeat that, and I'll see if I can convince you of that. Because then we got to uh, tackle what these two visions are doing in light of all that. And they really fit in nicely. So again, I wish we had double the time, but that is all for today. Let me make sure I shut this off.
and uh, I'll see you guys upstairs.